I would say it had to be 75 to 100 feet away, up on a hill, way over, right? And back in those days, everyone was carrying guns. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about everyday people and everyday circumstances accomplishing the extraordinary, basically the impossible. Hear me out. My road name is Magic, because I do magic tricks, of course, from time to time. So all these guys, about 14 of them, and they're from different biker organizations, biker gangs, biker clubs, whatever, you know. Uh, and they're standing there shooting, and I walk up, and what do you got? This guy named Half Ton. He's Half Ton, he's a huge guy, right? Hey, Half Ton, what are you guys shooting at? And he says, uh, there's a white rock way up there on the hillside. You see that over there? So I pull out my little four-inch barrel Smith & Wesson. I just, with one hand, just pull the trigger back, point, boom, shoot, and ding, right off the white rock. See? Impossible. I said, you mean that one? He said, yeah. Oh, okay, well, good luck. And I turned around and walked away, like I do it all the time. And everybody's jaw drops, and they stop. And they, these guys with rifles missing it. You know? yeah. And they said, who the hell is that? He said, oh, that's magic, man. He does that kind of shit all the time. <laughs> and in my mind, I, could, I had to walk away cool. I couldn't. But inside, I'm going, ah, 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 ah. I couldn't have done that. I mean, if someone had my testicles in a vice, and they were getting ready, I said, you either hit that rock with, with 10 shots, or we're going to just mess you up. I couldn't have done it. So, luck, yeah. But... I figured we could, we could just talk and then... Sure. Episode 1, Beginner's Luck. So for our story today, we're going to talk to a quantitative methodologist. So you have a causal model for luck. We're going to hear one of my most embarrassing stories. What's a shell game? <laughs> <laughs> I love shell games. We talked to a professional poker player. There's a tournament in the Bahamas every year and they have this shark tank. A professor of dance. Cut that. Cut the last 20 seconds. A neuroscientist. PhD in pharmacology from the University of Cambridge uh, in England. A group of semi-professional gamers and game designers. I would use my actual name if it was under a different circumstance. But firstly, a magician. Now my magic is different than luck. Yeah. It's, it's like playing the piano. I don't l luckily hit the right keys. Okay. I know where to go. Mm -hmm. I practice, or I may play something that I never played before. I yeah. do all the time, but I still have the theory. I still have the dexterity, and I know where I've got the mechanics down. Okay. So I'm not lucky that I'm playing the notes. Yeah, I'm playing them. But once in a while, things will come together in a song that express. So we're in this magician's really workshop. And we're surrounded by magical paraphernalia and posters of famous magicians. And yes, 
my dad is this magician. Now, there, there is a trick. I can't tell you the secrets to the trick, but I can tell you part of it because it's just a gag trick. Okay. A gag trick is a trick where you do something and the person thinks there's going to be an outcome. Yeah. But in reality, the outcome doesn't work out. But while they're watching for A to happen, B takes place, and B is really was, was designed to blow your mind. And I was with a bunch of engineers. So an engineer comes up to me, I says, here, pick any 10 cards, and he does. I show him each of the 10 cards. Then I put the 10 cards underneath a handkerchief. I reach in, I tell him, I'm gonna pull, I, I, I ask him just to think of one of the 10 cards, any one of the 10 cards, it didn't matter. <laughs> pick any one of the 10 cards. I will just feel the 10 cards under the handkerchief, and I'm gonna feel the card that he's thinking of. I'm going to pull it out and show it to him. I pull his card out. I say, here's your card. Uh It was like the four of clubs or something. And the look that came over his face was almost ghostly. He looked like, how in the world could you know that? So like he said, it's a gag trick. It's not meant to work. That's not your card. Oh, well, I can't. I can't guess your card, the room isn't right, the cosmic... And the crazy thing here is, it actually did. So I took the four of clubs and I put it in my coat pocket because I was finished with it. And and you can still see the other nine cards shape under the the handkerchief. So I grabbed the corner of the handkerchief and said, well, I've guessed your card, of course, like I said I would, but we don't need the other nine cards now. So I dropped the handkerchief and my hands emptied, the handkerchief's empty, and the nine cards have disappeared, which was the purpose of the trick. I'm leaving the party, and all of a sudden a whole group of engineers rush me at the door. Yeah. And they say, listen, he's been telling us that you were able to take, you know, to do this, and we don't believe him. We think he's he's bullshitting us, right? Yeah. I turn around, I say, all right, I won't do it to him, I told the guy, I won't do it to you. Mm-hmm. I've already read his mind, but I'll do it to a new guy, you. So I give him the deck, I said, just pick out any old 10 cards you want out of there. So he grabs random 10 cards, and I hold them up, all 10 cards, and he looks at them. So I put the 10 cards under the, the, the cloth. I reach in, and I pull out one card, says, that's your card. And you can see the same ghostly look on his face. And I put that away. And the other guy next to him says, see what I told you? And I says, and by the way, you can still see the shape of the card. Now, he thought I was going to go in there and say, disappear. But I reach in, I pulled another card out. That was yours. And it was. The chances of that working like that are probably a thousand, ten thousand to one. So it's stories like this that got me thinking about this idea. I've got a theory about this, a through thread of sorts. I've heard both of these stories told for many audiences, and most people describe the events as lucky. I could chalk it up to luck and end the show there, but I think there's more to it. One of the most iconic experiences of luck in my culture is that of the beginner, and I'm now convinced that there's a process driving that. So to explore this idea, I started with the pioneers of chance, the pathfinders of fortune, gamers. (laughs) And I asked them straight up if they believed in beginner's luck. 
No, I don't think so. No. I believe in chance. Beginner's chance? Not, not beginner's chance. Like, chance. Like, legitimately chance. It's like... I did believe I in beginner's Percentages luck. of How's things happening. Yeah. When you first added Primal Surge to your deck, how, many, how often did you Primal Surge that first? I used to believe in beginner's luck until I played Stratton. Go ahead. That first time. <laughs> God, my beginner's luck time is So I struck out. Round two. Like that's a real thing. People say that, and then they draw it. I've seen people. It. I say it. I've seen, well, I've seen you say <laughs> it all the time. All the time. And I've seen fail. Okay, so what they're talking about is this phenomenon of yeah. naming the card you're going to draw off the top of the deck and then drawing it. It's called heart of the cards. You can do a real heart of the cards. See, I feel like the way I work it is that I say it so much that chance dictates it. Yeah, it's gonna have to work someday. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what they're talking about um, is a pretty troubling idea that we want chance to be exciting. And so we set up situations again and again and again where these exciting things can happen. And then we remember those. And I agree with them. A card drawn off the top of a deck is a random occurrence. However, I wasn't ready to give up on the idea. And so I asked a group of uber gamers. These guys hung out in a church that had been converted into a veritable paradise, like a, a game bunker. There was an actual wall rack loaded with at least 20 Nerf guns at the ready. Computer stations, a game design studio, a beanbag chair that could fit a dozen people. Bear in mind, this was a private residence. Yeah, nice. Johnny. I, I guess yeah, get Johnny. Johnny will represent. To their credit, they were playing a video game Why? while I was talking to them. We're talking about luck? Well, yeah, we're talking about luck. We're talking about luck. So okay. I've abridged the more rambly parts of this interview, but eventually we got to the heart of it. We're talking about rolling dice in Dungeons and Dragons. Like, so you notice that when you're relaxed, you roll better. Yeah. And I see you care less. But, I mean, really, that's... Sure. I, I feel like <laughs> you are uh, putting yourself more in a state of mind to <laughs> roll with the situation. Yeah. <laughs> means, means yeah. That, uh, like, I just find I roll better in that situation. I'll, I'll put a little laugh track. True to my word. So we are all on the same page. Like, luck as a, a thing you can train, a thing that you can change. Completely bullshit. There's nothing to that. Um, no, I don't so, think so. But it's fun to entertain the idea that uh, there might be a luck gland. This is a point that I'm going to come back to later. But for now, the thing that really interests me is what Johnny is talking about. Rolling with the punches. He's emphatic that he rolls better when he's relaxed. And his friends are equally sure that he just cares less. On the one hand, Johnny's relaxed state may lead him to evaluate his roles more positively. But on the other, in his relaxed state, he may be aware of more options and make different choices that affect which roles he makes. I'm not saying that somehow his roles are actually better when he relaxes, but he's describing a real experience of rolling better. Luck is just being able to capitalize on a situation more than anything. I, I can say yes, or just like determine what I'm going to do with this information. Like. I guess this goes without saying that none of you believe in beginner's luck. Uh, I believe no. that some games are made for beginner's luck, as in... Right. Well, what about games yeah, that like clearly aren't, like poker? Poker, 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 poker? Well, what about poker? Podcast debut. My name is Jason Sue. I play poker three to four days a week. That's how I make all my money. And then I can do whatever I want after that. I started playing about 12 years ago. Okay. Yeah. 
So um, you've been doing it. And I started making really good money about 10 years ago. I don't really call myself a professional poker player anymore because I feel like I'm doing lots of things and, uh, you know, what I do has not as much to do with money as what I enjoy doing. But I guess, according to the IRS, I'm a professional poker player. I'm really interested in this thing. People talk about beginner's luck. You've heard of mm-hmm. it. People say, oh, he's got beginner's luck. Do you see that in poker? Yeah, I, I see it all the time. But I also see beginners losing a lot of money immediately all the time. <laughs> right. So I think like the mind just kind of thinks that beginner's luck is a thing because it's a phrase that we've learned before. But it's probably equally beginners are lucky or unlucky but we only remember when we see the uh beginner getting lucky because it's upsetting to us to be losing to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing i think in psychology it's the availability heuristic Mm -hmm. where like if i think beginners luck is a thing i'll look for examples okay wikipedia said it better than i just did the availability heuristic is the tendency to overestimate the likelihood of events with greater availability in memory availability which can be influenced by how recent the memories are or how unusual or emotionally charged they may be. Yeah, totally. That, yeah. Like, I definitely don't believe that a beginner is going to be luckier than right. anybody else that day. So does, do you think luck exists, though? Um, yes, definitely, yes. It's completely random. Yeah. There's nothing that you can do to predict it or any of that. You can only respond to it. There's that idea again. Putting yourself more in a state of mind to roll with the situation. In poker, like, there's luck in the short term. So if you and I played one hand of poker, it's 50-50 who would win. It doesn't matter. It's just whoever has the better hand will win. But if we played uh, a million hands of poker, uh, I would win 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And then so anything in between, like, one and a million, my chances of coming up ahead gets larger and larger and so that's like there's that's where luck versus skill comes into play and so it's like the longer the sample goes the less it becomes about luck and the more it becomes about like what you're how good you are at whatever it is that you're doing so when you're playing do you ever feel like is it do you just stick to the odds entirely or do you ever have moments where you're like i know that this is going to be the card that comes up no i don't really i don't really ever have a feeling because that's kind of what people who don't know what they're doing to yep um my focus is more on like how will i respond to this card coming up how would i respond to this card coming up or this card it's not about like is this card going to come up it's, it's not like it's like god i hope this card comes uh, uh, i yeah. mean sometimes sometimes i'm like yeah i could really use the ten of hearts right now but yeah. i'm not like oh it's definitely coming because <laughs> um, if i could do that then i would be filthy rich and right not playing poker that much uh, so there's <laughs> no like voodoo that you put on the cards or you no like, no just uh hoping for the best and uh you know just trusting that my skill level is enough to create that edge in the long term yeah yeah do you um, think superstitious rituals do anything i actually think that for some people they can help like yeah. i know that for me when i'm playing in a poker tournament and things are going well i can get a little bit ocd like i want to go to the same bathroom that i went to two hours ago (laughs) and i want to like eat the same meal i had the day before Uh um and it keeps me like feeling like things are the same Uh um but i don't think it actually is going to like change my fortune yeah it just helps me like stay on like a level plane 
so that I feel like I can continue playing well if I feel like I've been playing well. So if I can stay in that zone, in that focused zone, then I'll play better. Mm-hmm. But it's not about like the actual superstition itself. It's just a little bit of a neurotic tendency. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I've seen people who will like not shower if they were winning. And that was just very unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen people yeah, wear the same underwear. I've not seen it, but I've heard them say, yeah. you know, I'm not changing my underwear until I do this. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff. Anytime there's money involved uh-huh. and luck, you know, people are going to think that things are affecting outcomes when they're really not. Mm. Yeah. It's about showing up and doing my best every day. Mm. And as long as I do that, I make money. Um, if I show up and I half-ass it and I don't do my best mm. and I win, I'm not as happy as if I showed up, do my best, and I lose that day because... Yeah the one day result is irrelevant it's about doing it consistently over and over Jason told me a couple poker stories this is my favorite Uh, I I heard a story about one guy in the the Bahamas there's a tournament in the Bahamas every year and they have this shark tank Um, and they close it at night and these guys they bet this guy, I mean, they offered him $5,000 if he would jump and dive into the bottom of this shark tank, which is like 15, 20 feet, touch the bottom, come up without getting eaten by a shark. Um, and he does it. And they give him the $5,000. Um, and the best part of the story is he takes the money and goes and plays poker with it and he loses it all on his first hand. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that. Ha- like, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, but... Yeah, but in that world, it's just like one one chip. You know, it's five thousand. They have five thousand dollar chips. Oh just, my god! You know, and so you lose the value of money when it's just a clay disc that says five thousand dollars on it instead of you know a wad. Five hundred nice meals. What's the biggest chip that you've seen? Uh, I've never had one, but I've seen hundred thousand dollar chips. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, what's the biggest chip you've had? If you don't mind me. Asking? Uh, five thousand. Okay. I, I once had like six or seven of them in my pocket at once. It felt pretty cool. Yeah. Cause all this time while well, I will be patient I'll be singing along to the radio station Hoping one day you'll come around and you'll see Yeah, you're coming back to me After talking to Jason, I had basically given up on the idea that luck like, as a cosmic force was something that we humans could train, develop, or feel. But at the same time, I saw these lines converging on an idea that how we respond to luck makes all the difference in terms of outcomes. Luck can happen anytime you place anywhere. You can be bending over to pick up something, you don't pull your back out. That's pretty lucky, especially if you're out of shape. I mean, there's the, the range of luck. I think luck can be anything to anyone, depending on what their current situation is in that instant in time. Because I'm really kind of a now person. And being in the now, luck is, I almost see it if you, if I would like to graphically portray it. You got beams of, of light shining all throughout a room, let's say laser beams of light. Yeah. And everyone, and they're moving around. And every once in a while, they all, about 80% or more of them, 
converge on one spot uh-huh. just for that instant and then they they go away now if you're floating around this room and you happen to be at that spot when all those lights converge yeah that would be luck so i took all of these theories and ideas and i brought them to a psychologist is this close enough? Uh, closer is better. And if you can, okay. Yeah, that's that's best. Right. My topic is beginner's luck. All uh, right. And so, uh, I guess, who are you? A beginner. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, for a beginning, uh, no, I'm I'm Laura Little. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm your friend and former <laughs> yeah. teacher. Yeah. And you, uh, what do you you work at University of Washington? I do. Okay. I am in the psychology department there. Cool. The university does not endorse any. No, <laughs> no I'm sure they don't. <laughs> um, yeah. And you study and you study statistics, or at least you taught me statistics. I did. And you're you specifically studied quantitative methodology, which I love to say. That's right. I do too. It's yeah. very much fun. <laughs> it's the same the same kind of fun as telling people that. My favorite class as a graduate student was multidimensional contingency table analysis. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's just a lot of syllables. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to pause it right there just to say um, that I recorded this in a cafe, and I will never do this to you again. Okay, on with it. Uh, do you experience beginner's luck? Yeah, all the time. I've made, I've made so many changes in my life that I'm almost always a beginner at something yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I stumble into things. I've, I've never had to look for a job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is just really weird. Um, yeah. I have a child who is adopted who yeah. was sat in my lap. So as a beginner trying to become a parent, luck. Um, as a beginning person in the workforce, um, just totally luck. My dad talked about it that way, too, mm-hmm. being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, which may not be exactly the same thing as beginner's luck, where, right. you know, where you're doing something and you happen to do it just right, Yeah. You know, where you're the agent. Usually I'm not the agent so much. Huh. So I asked her what luck was to her. Fortune, yeah. um, coincidence. Yeah. A lot. I kind of guess at what people are going to say. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and you, you actually thought that I was going to say something else? I think so. What did you think I was going to say? I, I expected something along the lines of, like, there is no luck. There is oh. there's only chance and probability, and it's fair, or something like that. Hmm. Again, well, I mean, all, all luck is is chance that has a positive outcome, right? Right. Oh. You know. That's a sound bite that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> It may be the only one, but, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, sure. Yeah. But I think there is, maybe, I mean, maybe there's no chance. I mean, maybe somewhere uh, mm-hmm. everything is completely deterministic, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not privy to that, so it yeah. feels like luck. So right. the best model we have right. to approximate what happens Yes. Yeah. a luck model. That's right. The chance model. Yes. Yeah. This goes back to what the gamers were talking about, that we define what is lucky. Do you think you can change your luck just by changing your definition of positive or changing your filter that you look at the world with? Huh. Maybe. Like those lucky people. Maybe, just... yeah. They're, maybe they have very low <laughs> low thresholds for, wow, that was lucky. I, I actually got to work without 
nip tea in this coffee shop? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow, how lucky. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably part of the definition of being a healthy person is you know, mm. to notice things like that and maybe frame them as something nice has happened to me, you know, right. whether you call it luck or not. But Yeah. Okay, yeah, this is, this is going to go off the deep end. We might, this might not be usable at all. Because <laughs> uh, I was thinking about it like with this beams of light thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the beams of light and being in the right place at the right time really works mm-hmm. if you're not sure what you're up to. Right, right. Because, you know, if I'm, if I'm like, ah, I'm hungry, but I'm not like, I want El Salvadorian tacos. Like the odds right. that I'm going to find that right. are low, but the odds that I'm going to find something that interests me to right. eat is high. Right. But as soon as I start looking for El Salvadorian tacos, just the, the, the context that create those, that... That is a great... Yeah. yeah. That's a great analogy. I like yeah. that a lot. That makes me really want to think about this. Yeah, cool. Good. Yeah. In my research of beginner's luck, I remember the work of a grad student that I had studied with in college. He had been studying flow and the contexts that create flow. These contexts, which I'll get to in a minute, were starting to look a lot like the conditions that exist when a beginner tries something. On top of that, my working definition of luck was changing. My new definition included being engaged in something with a motivation, being available to respond to outcomes while remaining unattached to specific outcomes, rolling with the punches, having a sense of confidence. This was starting to look a lot like the definition of flow. So I brought this up with Laura. This is researcher, Mihai, and she sent Mihai. Okay. I think I'm saying that correctly. She studied flow states. Okay. And uh, she listed these six factors that contribute to flow states. Mm-hmm. And I think that those six factors exist when somebody starts at bowling or any sort of activity for the first time. I think that these six factors... Oh, so you have a causal model for luck. Yes. For what people are what going people to... Perceive as beginner's luck. Yes. Okay. That's what are the six factors? Yeah. Okay. Ah, um. uh, there they are. Intense yeah. focus, Intense concentration. Focus. So, in a 2001 article published by Mihai Csikszent Mihai titled "Flow Theory in Research," he established that there are six independent factors that, when combined, encompass flow. I'll list them. See if any of them sound familiar. One, intense and focused concentration on the present moment. Two. Merging of action and awareness. Three, a loss of reflective self-consciousness. Four, a sense of personal control or agency over the situation. Five, a distortion of temporal experience. One's subjective experience of time is altered. Six, experience of the activity as intrinsically rewarding, also referred to as autotalic experience. Eh? Yeah? Okay, we're going to go one step further. In a 2005 article titled Flow, Mihai wrote that to achieve a flow state, there are three conditions that must be met. You, you ready? All right. Here they are. One, one must be involved in an activity with a clear set of goals and progress. This adds direction and structure to the task. Two, the task at hand must have clear and immediate feedback. This helps the person negotiate any change in demands and allows them to adjust their performance to maintain the flow state. Three, one must have a good balance between the perceived challenges of the task at hand and their own perceived skills. One must have confidence in one's ability to complete the task at hand. Okay, 
back to Laura. You know what that's like, what that reminds me of is, so I, I raced bicycles for a pretty good period of time. And it's, it's that, it's the new bicycle phenomenon too. I am so much faster on this new bicycle. New shoes, too. New shoes, yeah. I walk faster. Oh, yeah, new shoes, yeah. Yep. We do that with everything. Yeah, Yeah. I think, yeah, new spiral notebook. Yeah. I'm ready. Yo, you're not who I'm pitying. Well on your way to oblivion. I express the right to spit your domes like meridians. 50 men couldn't penetrate the force we generate. I write my poem on styrofoam. Don't they know disintegrate. Look it up on Wikipedia. And if you're worried about the spelling of Mihai Cheek sent Mihai, just type in flow psychology. So that grad student I mentioned earlier, I tracked him down. His name's Ryan. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor of dance at James Madison University. We had a summer research course, and a lot of my focus in grad school was looking at the environment of a classroom and how is the best way that students can learn. You know, I think about why I dance, why I've continued to dance over these years, and I realize it's moments generally in class, sometimes on stage performing, but really moments in class where I would just feel like I completely lose myself. I'm running in from the side and I just get enveloped all of a sudden in the movement. And I, uh, you know, I talk about it as being like, there's no place I'd rather be at that moment. I was talking about that at one point and, and just kind of researching that idea. And I came across this, this theory of flow. You know, this idea of an intense and, and focused concentration where the, what you're doing requires you to just get completely engaged into something. One of the other big things was this idea of losing yourself, you know, and, and sort of this loss of, of awareness of yourself. A big part of flow is, is that idea of you're not aware of yourself anymore painters who paint for 12 hours straight and they don't realize how hungry they are because they're so engaged or for dancers who are dealing with injuries and they're sore but in this state you don't feel the pain i asked him if he uses flow theory in planning his classes or shaping his classroom environment and he puts these ideas into direct practice clear goals you know an understanding of the expectations if you are overwhelming the dancer with the movement then they're just gonna kind of feel rejected about it and be like, I can't do this, there's no way I can do this. I think what you, you wanna create that, that upward trajectory of engaging them, but making it manageable. When I was living in New York the last six years, I worked with Doug Barone. He really let you be yourself on stage. Literally, each time we perform, there's a different journey that happens with it. Flow to me, getting lost in the movement, having an experience where, you know, 
you're driving without, you know, any concerns and the lanes are just opening up to you. That happens with newness, I feel like, and a a freshness to something. Like when I'm trying something new now, I have no expectation. Beginners, if they can be in this place of not being so freaked out about doing something new, and they can just be like, you know what, I'm just going to have fun because I shouldn't be good at this anyway. Then all of a sudden, that loss of awareness of self, any self-esteem issues or any judgment of yourself, it goes away. That's a really important point that Ryan is making. I don't automatically experience flow when I'm trying something new, especially when I'm afraid. Put me in front of a medium-sized crowd of my friends, and my abilities are probably going to be enhanced. Put me in front of a large crowd of people I don't know, and I'm probably going to feel hobbled. sounds so manageable. There are three simple conditions that, once met, lead to the wonderful experience of flow. But it's not so simple. If we could just tell ourselves to have no expectations when we engage in an activity, we'd all be bowling 150 our first time out. There's obviously a lot wrapped up in attempting something or trying something new. So rather than try and get the same fear-driven results, what can we do? I talked to a neuroscientist. That's how I'm going to introduce that. I talked to a neuroscientist. <laughs> My name is Vandana Verma, and I have a bachelor's in biochemistry um, from the University of London, a master's in physiology and biomedical sciences research from the University of London, a PhD in pharmacology from the University of Cambridge uh, in England. And I'm a scientist interested in flow and I'm interested in how flow works at the body level, at the neurotransmitter level, at the chemistry level, at the physiology level. I had a long period where I was not in flow. And then so I've come across these ideas in the last um, I'd say 10 years or so, I'm also a long time meditator. And so I know what it feels like within my body and with my brain, within my mind, um, when I am in flow and what the difference in those two states are. And I've always been really curious as to what, what happens when I am in flow and when I'm not in flow. Vandana told me that there is a pathway for flow and there's also a pathway for fear. She broke it down for me. So for me, the natural go-to was what's actually happening in my body? What's actually happening in my cells? Cells are like human beings. You know, they need to communicate with each other. And this is going on all the time. You know, there is trillions of interactions that are happening between cells. You know, the cell is like a factory where so much is going on constantly um, that we are just totally unaware of. So they send out various chemicals to each other. 
Um, they're, they're always they're always in connection with each other, and so the way that they talk to each other and send messages and information about whether they have you know is there something that they need is there something that they want they release these chemicals from particular cells. It'll release it into the space between two nerve cells, which is called the synapse. And one cell will have a, a receptor for that, and then you know the signal can carry on. First, the flow pathway. There are some definite biochemicals and neurotransmitters that are very, very important there. The most important ones are dopamine. Some other ones include oxytocin, which we know is important in you know, bonding and female physiology. Um, there's another one called anandamide. Um, endorphins are involved. Serotonin is involved. And when these neurotransmitters are released, it will cause a whole different cascade of biochemical reactions which will put our body into the relaxation response. You know, where I feel like, oh, everything's good and I'm in flow. Uh, on the other side of the coin, you've got noradrenaline and adrenaline. And that does pretty much the opposite. So if uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline is fight or flight, Dopamine and all of those other um, neurotransmitters that I mentioned are really involved in the rest and digest and hey, chill out <laughs> kind of response. And so um, with noradrenaline, when that's released, it does the opposite thing. From the sympathetic nervous system, it increases your heart contraction rate. It'll trigger me into action, basically. You know, it'll start you know, the glucose coming out from, from the cells where it's being stored into where I can use it. You know, for example, patients that have PTSD, there's a whole biochemical cascade that really does get triggered. And I think we all have our own more subtle version of that. You know, our body doesn't know the difference between me being scared in, you know, in traffic or me having a scary interaction or me being on the internet and seeing something that provokes a reaction. Um, and you know, or a saber-toothed tiger. So these are survival mechanisms that we've developed. But the positive side of that is that I'm much more likely to be in flow when I've got these other neurochemicals flowing through my body. So dop dopamine is associated with so many other different things, as well as the reward system. It's the main. Um, it's the main neurotransmitter that's involved in creativity, for example. Could you, could you trick the body with a cocktail? Could you like create a cocktail of dopamine, serotonin, a bunch of neurotransmitters yep. and inject it? You could and say, hey, yes, and this time. Is, and uh, Yeah, absolutely. And this is where addictive drugs come into play because all of those drugs uh, do affect those systems. So um, certain types of drugs prevents the dopamine in our bodies from, from disappearing. So it keeps the dopamine level high all the time. If we think about the pathway of how these things are made in the body, they really come from a common structure. They come from an amino acid called tyrosine, and then, um, then we start onto the dopamine pathway. But then it just the body just needs to add one more chemical, and then we can go into fight or flight if we need to, because noradrenaline and um, adrenaline are are right there, uh, you know, within one chemical group or one synthesis away, which the body can do pretty easily. That's part of, I think, why I'm so fascinated by beginner's luck is that I feel like it is this almost like a gimme. It's like a, it's a gateway that, that is kind of primed. It's primed. It's already, there's, there's lighter fluid there. There's matches. It's all there waiting to go the dopamine way. And all it takes yes. is someone to be like, oh, I'm going to try something new today. And then yes, it just kicks absolutely. on everything. Yeah. Yeah.
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then and when and if I'm in fear that that literally cannot happen. Yeah. Cuz cuz the body the body physiology does not support it. Right. No. It's it's really an either or system there. It's one of the few ones that we have, but mm-hmm. it's there. When I'm trying something new, I have two options. I yeah. could be really scared. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. I'm trying something, excuse my language. I'm trying something <laughs> new. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm going <laughs> to up. Yeah. And so that's going to take me down a certain pathway. Mm-hmm. But if I'm like, oh, I'm trying something new. I'm really curious. Let me do this. Let me just, um, you know, I'm more likely to go down the other pathway. And that's where beginner's luck is more likely to happen because mm. I've triggered that flow state from a different biochemical pathway. And I've yeah. put my body into a state where it um, feels a sense of safety around what yeah. I'm doing. You are overwhelming the dancer with the movement, then they're just gonna kind of feel rejected about it. Be like, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. With a four inch barrel though, that's just <laughs> almost almost a miracle. You know, yeah. the chance of that bullet hitting that, that, that rocket was no bigger than in my head. Yeah, I think there's there's luck, but again, I'm out fishing. Right. You got to be out there fishing to catch a fish. Yeah. So luck does happen sometimes when you're not expecting it. Uh-huh. But if you're engaged in luck, that means you're engaged in something. almost like walking to work the same way every day you know I'm, I'm on automatic and so if I want to start creating more flow in my life I need to almost train my brain um, to to do new things and to start using dopamine and, and my creativity and um, as my juice rather than um, adrenaline as, as, the, as the, the fuel that pushes me forward in life. Because after a period of time, that's exhausting. Basically, we can train ourselves to use this other state that like kind of almost uh, seems like the cultural default that we're working on right now is adrenaline. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And then through other, through walking to work a different way or changing the way you get out of bed in the morning or, um, you know, even change, being aware of the way that you talk and changing your voice as you talk can light up this dopamine system. And then, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and that really does touch on what scientists call neuroplasticity. The brain is a dynamic plastic system. And so that ability to make new connections is always there. And so we can train our brains to, to start utilizing dopamine pathways if we choose. Thinking about that and feeling into that, I found some tools that I came across, as you know, from the Hendrix Institute that we refer to as you know, fear melters. I've checked these out. Basically, there are body processes that accompany fear that have visible results, like fighting and fleeing, two that are commonly experienced and talked about in daily life. But there's also freezing, like a deer in headlights, or fainting, like an opossum. On the other side of the coin, though, there are also body processes that accompany flow and have visible results. And if we learn how to make subtle shifts in scary situations, from fear movements to flow movements, we can jumpstart neurochemical processes and flip our experience. We can literally engineer the relaxation response through simple movements. 
The Hendrix Institute has free instructional videos on their website. They're pretty cool. So you're writing a book about this. I am writing a book about this. About this very topic, okay. And, <laughs> and do you have a title for your book? or? Um, right now the working title is The Physiology of Flow. We're nearing the end of this journey. It doesn't have to be the end of the journey, by the way, just my part. This podcast started out about beginner's luck, and in a way, it is. But it morphed into an exploration of a psychological phenomenon that's probably as old as we are. And being a beginner gives us a window into that sacred experience. People associate flow with mastery of something, and we see it there. But glimpses of instant mastery exist all around us. I have one last story to share, but before I do, I'd like to read you a quote from Mihai's book, Flow, The Psychology of Happiness. He wrote, Enjoyable activities that produce flow have a potentially negative effect. While they are capable of improving the quality of existence by creating order in the mind, they can become addictive, at which point the self becomes captive of a certain kind of order and is then unwilling to cope with the ambiguities of life. The flow experience, like everything else, is not good in an absolute sense. It is good only in that it has the potential to make life more rich, intense, and meaningful. It is good because it increases the strengths and complexity of the self. But whether the consequences of any particular instance of flow are good in a larger sense need to be discussed and evaluated in terms of more inclusive social criteria. The question regarding flow is not only how we can make it happen, but also how we can manage it using it to enhance life, yet being able to let it go when necessary. Okay, on with my personal recounting of trying something new. And then coming to the stage is the name that I've already forgotten. Wait, it's in this pocket. I've got it. I've got it. I'm going to say your name. God damn it. Damien K! Damien K! <laughs> Bear in mind, I am not a professional storyteller. This was ad-libbed. Oh, oh. Feels better than it looks. <laughs> okay, so this is a, this is a story about, uh, well, about brash, being brash and young. Um, I studied abroad when I was in uh, 21, I was 21 and I was in Paris and uh, I was thrifty and poor and I had this kind of poor threadbare thing going on which I kind of still do if you can see threadbare. okay and um, that means I ate everybody else's food that was my that was my <laughs> shtick <laughs> was, um, I would go to these restaurants and I would um, I would wait to order and then, you know, just kind of sit around. And I knew that we were about to go walking afterward, you know, because we're in Paris, and so, so people would order. And they wouldn't want to carry their leftovers for four hours walking around the city. And so they would be like, oh, I don't want this. And I'd be like, I'll take it. And um, 
That happened for about a week until people realized that I was the trash can on the trip. And so I, I wouldn't even have to ask anymore. People would go out to eat and bring me back their leftovers. So I ate um, a lot of food that I didn't love. <laughs> but I saved money. I saved, you know, probably about, I, I would estimate, 100 euro, which is going to come back later in the story. Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, about halfway through the trip, um, we, we, me and two friends, we went to an open-air market. This is outside the city limits. And uh, uh, I was going to get, you know, gifts for friends and things like that. Um, and I walked around, and I remember I haggled. I, I did my haggling, and I, I, I got a pair of shoes for 30 euro. Oh, so good. I still remember. I was like, 30 euro, 30 euro. And he was like, no, no, Carol. And I was like, no. Uh, and, you know, numbers and stuff. And anyway, <laughs> the result was I got them for 30 euro. And so I did all this stuff. I spent 50 euro at this market getting little gifts for all my family. And I thought, that was really good, Damien. You're so thrifty and smart. Um, and that kind of sentence probably ran through my head a lot when I was that age. <laughs> and also, uh, my dad is a magician, so a little, that's like part of the story, is he's a magician. So I've grown up to watching uh, a lot of sleight of hand and a lot of, um, well, kind of thinking that you're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> so I might have picked some of that up. Uh, so I'm, I'm leaving the market, I'm feeling really good about what I had, uh, what I had saved. And there's this little table sitting there, just this kind of unassuming table with a crowd of people around it. And I'm, what's, what's this crowd there? And who, who's, you know, what's going on? And people are very excited. And they're holding up money. And I'm like, OK, I got I to gotta check this out. And it's a uh, shell game. Do you, do, how many people here know what a shell game is? I see a couple. Yeah. Yeah, this is like the three-card Monty. Um, or a version of it. And there weren't actual shells. These were little black coasters. Um, and there was a, a man there doing this game, and it was on a newspaper on a table, and he was running the, running the coasters, and the people were taking bets with money, and whew, yeah. Uh, 50 euro, double or nothing. So yeah, you get it right, you get 100 euro. Just let that sink in, 100 euro. And if you get it wrong, your money's gone. I watched this guy make um, probably 800 euro in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm sitting back there, and I'm like, hmm, mm-hmm, and I'm watching him, and I, you know, I've seen my dad do a lot of sleight of hand, and I know a little bit of magic myself, um, not a lot, but enough to realize that, like, okay, he's got some things going on, but I get it, and I'm getting it right, see, I'm guessing every time and watching people lose their money, and people win, too, right, people come up and win, and so I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting it right every time, I have to bet. I'm just going to get my 50 euro back. I'm just going to bet 50 euro, get back what I spent in the market, and just walk out of here, uh, you know, successful, uh, young, you know, got, got it, got one on him. And, um, <laughs> so I, I walk up, pull out 50 euro, a 50 euro note, and I uh, hold it up, and I guess, and I get it wrong. <laughs> of course, right? And I stand back, and whew, it sinks in. <sighs> okay, that just happened. Um, and then I start thinking, okay, I got this guy. Like, I get, I see what I did wrong, right? Everybody follows the money. So um, when, I, when I bet 50 euro, he like, hell, he holds the money up. He's like, you know, 50 euro. And everybody's like, woo, the money. And they miss this thing that he does. When he does that move, he rotates the paper on the table. I'm like, seeing it. I'm like, oh, how could I have been so stupid? <laughs> so I... <laughs> 
<laughs> I turned to uh, my friend, <laughs> Brooks, and uh, I, I looked at him and said, hey, buddy, can I, can I borrow 50 euro? <laughs> and, you know, he's giving me this look, like, seriously, dude? Uh, <laughs> and he lends me, the, he lends me the money. I'm like, I'm good for it. I'll, I'll pay you back when we, get, when we get back. I've saved so much money by being a trash can this whole trip. <laughs> and, uh, and he gives me the money, and I, and I go up again, and uh, I, I do it, but this time I'm watching, and I know. And I look at the guy, and I say, this one. And he, he's like, are you sure? <laughs> and this is this critical moment. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. And he says, are you sure you don't want this one? <laughs> I'm like, what is, he, what is he doing to me? What is this guy doing to me? He's mind gaming me, but I know, I know. So I'm like, no, it is this one. And then he turns it over, and of course I'm wrong! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and uh, I just, I, rem I still remember that feeling. My heart was like, down my leg and out my shoe. <laughs> the new shoes that I just bought, too. They don't even do anything for you when, when that happens. Um, and it was the one that he was like, are you sure it's not this one? I, I think he was maybe trying to do me a favor or something. Um, and so uh, my, my roommate and my friend went and bought me ice cream. <laughs> Which is no, no consolation at all. <laughs> After losing 100 euro, I think that stuck with me for uh, about a year. <laughs> um, and, um, so, oh yeah, is that, okay, that's it. That's it! <laughs> so yeah, that's me. <laughs> And it, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. I was leaving Paris. Mm -hmm. I was walking down an alley. It was like on my last day there. And I saw an old man doing the same game. And there was no, not many people there. But it's like the same coasters. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, yeah, this must be a game that a lot of people play. And he's like slower at it. And I'm watching him and I'm like... I can do it this time. <laughs> like the legend of the <laughs> Yeah, and I see some other wo woman comes up and she wins like, she wins twice in a row from him. And then she's just like, ah, that's sweet. And she leaves. And I'm like, I can get this old man because like, he's slow he's at it. He's slow. <laughs> I, I didn't. I refrained. It was like one of the harder things mm. that I've done. Mm. And then I left. And... I came home and I told my dad that story and he laughed at me. Oh. He laughed at me and he showed me um he showed me two ways that it could have been done where nobody ever wins mm -hmm. unless they want him to win. Like cuz one of the black coasters has a white dot on the bottom, right? Mhm. Mm no, all of them have white dots on them and they have a little black piece that covers the white dot. Mhm. And all the so it's like the white dot's covered and whenever he wants to it doesn't matter. Whatever when he picks over, that's going to be the white dot. So he chooses who wins and loses. Mhm. And then the people who win are just their friends right? who come up. Right. That's like one classic way yeah. to do it. And then he said there could be something else with magnets. And also the way three card Monty is set up, it looks different from far away than it does up close. That's how uh... it works. And so you, of course you get it from when you're standing back. I mean, that's the draw. Right. It's like certain right. specific right. movements look different close up and you just miss it. And there's no way to get around it. That's how magicians make their living. So I learned two things. Gambling is bad for me. <laughs> it's it like I can I can feel the jitters and adrenaline. Uh -huh. It's like, uh -huh. yeah, uh -huh. gambling not good. Not the way to go. <laughs> and um, don't play other people at their games mm -hmm. because they're always gonna win. 
My dad said it was like the cheapest lesson that I'll ever get. <laughs> the cheapest lesson, 150 bucks. Yeah. yeah, and I learned something that I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever played Three Card Monty again? No. No. <laughs> no. No. Thanks to all the contributors on the show, including my gaming group and my brother, my father, Jason, Laura, Ryan, Bandana, and to Brenna for hearing my embarrassing story. And to Erica for urging me to tell my story at the Moth event. Thanks to the good people at the Moth for sharing the recording of that story with me. Thanks to the Hendrix Institute for creating tools to access flow. I've trained with them, and yes, it really, really works. A big thank you to my editor, Juliet Machado, for listening to all six hours of rough material, none of which I was originally willing to take out, and for gently talking me down to the current succinct and beautiful incarnation of the show. Thank you to Casey for technical help. Original music by myself and Annie Infeld. Recorded music by a host of artists whose work I've included thanks to the Creative Commons license and public domain. Thanks to the Step Kids for their cover of Get Lucky, used to kick off and close the show. A shout out to the Free Music Archive, where I sourced a lot of the show's music. Jazz music for the Magician Story was the U.S. Army Band recorded live at Blues Alley. Funk track for the Poker Story was by The Willing. The track name involves a person named Lauren and is otherwise not so suited for the radio. The hip-hop at the end of the Statistician interview was by Agrav Lab off their Spacewalkers EP. If you're a fan of 90s hip-hop, I highly recommend them. Flow Pathway Music by Marceau. Fear Pathway Music by Costa T. The track right before the Moth Story was Night Owl by Broke for Free. Gamer soundtrack was Pirate Crew by Ross Bugden, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Check out Ross's channel on YouTube for more soundtracks. Public domain recording of Pomp and Circumstance provided through Wikimedia Commons. Many of the sound effects I used in the show I found on freesound.org, including the bleep sound effect by Ermine. Thank you, Freesound. Thank you, Public Domain. Thank you for listening. You're very welcome. I hope that you have something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I am. No, this is so fun. Yeah. So I can. Should I stop recording this now? Uh, or? Yeah. You-